Good morning, Cross Point, and welcome. How are you? If you have your Bible, I need you to open it, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're resuming our journey in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I need you to understand at the outset that everything the Bible tells you to do, you actually can do. I think there's an enormous disconnect in the life of the average Christian, which is me and you, because I'm just an average Christian, same as yourself. I'm your fellow struggler in being discipled to Jesus. There's a disconnect between what we see in Scripture and what we're told to do and what we actually put into practice because we check ourselves out of the process saying somebody somewhere may be able to do that. One of the missionaries that come to the church may be able to do that. One of those guys on the circuit who's giving his extraordinary testimony may be able to do that, but that's not me. And all too often I think biblical preaching in a church like ours runs the danger of becoming inspirational and comforting and encouraging, and for a brief moment, our vision of God is enlarged to be a little bit more like God's actual size and magnitude, but when we think about actually putting into practice what we've just seen on the pages of the Bible, we say, well, that has not been my experience. I'm just a normal, ordinary, weak person. I'm going to probably blow it in the church parking lot, and we just go on Sunday after Sunday, 52 Sundays a year if we're coming to church every week, and over the course of five years, we may discover that we know more of the Bible. We are are not in any substantial way different than we were a year earlier. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but does that resonate with any of you? Does that sound a little bit like your experience? At the reading and understanding through preaching or teaching of the Bible, you say, that's absolutely extraordinary, and then another voice says, but it's not me. That sounds wonderful. I wish I could do that. I'm happy he did that, but it's not for me. My premise, my argument to you is that you can do everything the Bible told you to do. You can't do everything that God's people have ever done because God truly does set some people aside in very special seasons of life to do extraordinary things through them. You're probably not going to part the Red Sea. (laughs) Some Christians see anything that is described as history in the Bible, put themselves in that story and are disappointed when they can't do that. That's an interpretive error. But if you're told to do it, if ordinary Christians in the epistles of Paul are told how to live, and if Paul, as he does today, offers his life and the life of his ordinary, ordinary companions, some of whom are nameless, if those things are on the page of Scripture as a model, as an example of something for us to emulate, you can do it. It's not that the Christian life is impossible, it's just that it's unattempted. And we're doing it with the wrong strength. And we're putting the focus and asking for the strength to come from us, and that, of course, is a mistake. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let me show you what I mean. 
in this intense passage. Warning, as we move forward through this passage, the passage will get ever harder for you to believe that you can put into actual practice. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm reading now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 1, a couple Sundays ago, Paul said, in spite of his great suffering, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, they've imprisoned us, they've tried to kill us, we've been betrayed, we've been starved, we've suffered in every kind of way, but we do not lose heart. He gives you the reason in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is putting his whole Bible together and understanding that the first words of the Hebrew Scriptures way back in Genesis chapter 1, the same God that spoke creation and light into existence has now shown into Paul's heart so that Paul can know who God is by knowing Jesus. If you're following the word picture Paul is face-to-face in a personal relationship. He has been welcomed into the family of God. He hasn't been admitted through the back door. He's not put in a quiet room. He's not tolerated. He's accepted. He's loved. He now is in the family of God. See that so far? Now, he goes on to say in today's passage in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, this treasure of knowing the good news of God, this treasure of knowing who God actually is, this treasure of having a personal relationship with God the Creator through Jesus, His Son, that's a treasure in our lives, but we have the treasure in, what's he say? That's a little weird. Jars of clay. What's the word picture there? We don't often use jars of clay. Let me give you the contemporary equivalent, and I may date myself but I checked with some very young people and they still knew what this was. It's Tupperware. Jars of clay in the ancient world were the disposable household utensils of the time. They weren't necessarily meant to be used a single time. They weren't disposable after one use, but they were very inexpensive. They were easily broken. So you had in a pre-plastic world where paper was still a developing technology, you had in an ordinary house all kinds of little jars of clay holding all kinds of different things. And the last thing you would put in a jar of clay is an enormous treasure. We don't put our heirlooms, we don't put precious metals in Tupperware and stick them on a shelf somewhere. You may have noticed they're now renting private vaults. That's a new thing to me. I had to look that up. I was in a nice shopping area, and I saw a company that had vault in the name. My chunky little self said, I wonder what they serve for food there. That's, that's a really interesting concept. I tried to turn vault into tacos somehow. Not, just tells you where my mind is routinely going. And no, it's a, it's a private safe deposit box. And that speaks of the wealth of our culture and society in the 21st century. A lot of people want to store their most precious things with armed security behind vaults. Paul says we have a treasure, the treasure of knowing God, but we have it in a clay jar. If you're following the word picture, the treasure is knowing God, the jar of clay is Paul himself. 
my life is very fragile. I've been given an enormous treasure of knowing God for myself, but I myself am very fragile and easily broken. Look, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Did you hear any part of your life story and your present circumstances in those verses? Do you feel like you're being squeezed to the point of dissolving? Do you feel like people or circumstances are persecuting you and consequently you're feeling like perhaps you've been abandoned by God? Do you feel like this time, because of your difficulties, you may be struck down never to rise again? Paul's acknowledging the difficulty of his life. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. The first parts of those little couplets, of those pairings of words, I think every Christian who's paying attention and has any amount of self-awareness can relate to what Paul is saying. We are sometimes afflicted. At least for me, I am often perplexed. I believe sometimes all of us suffer so much that we feel persecuted and we are often struck down. But we're not crushed, we're not despairing. In spite of persecution, God has not forsaken us, and even when we are struck down, we are not destroyed. The treasure of the gospel, the treasure of knowing Jesus is in your fragile life, and your difficult circumstances change nothing about it. In fact, that is the point. Look back in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show something. What is it? Read the Bible with me. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. If you found half a pound of gold in a Tupperware container, would you be impressed with the container? Would you stop to remark and say, you know, this is a, just a beautiful translucent plastic. It's fashioned by artisans in wonderful factories. And this little blue lid they've put on it with the pop, the center that can pop up or down, that's just a piece of art. If you found half a, pull, half a pound of gold in Tupperware, would you pause and for a moment and praise the Tupperware? No, you'd be entranced by the treasure. You'd be thrilled with the treasure. And that is exactly Paul's point. And if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling, to use the words of Paul, afflicted, if you're feeling crushed, if you're feeling persecuted, if you're feeling struck down, Paul wants you to know something, that our weakness displays God's power. Our weakness displays God's power. It's entirely intentional from God's part that you and I are weak. See, one of the reasons a lot of people are checking out of the Christian faith in our season of life 
is because we have told people, if you will come to Jesus, you will be strong and successful. And when they go out and start following Jesus and instead find themselves weak and failing, they think everything they've been told about Jesus can't possibly be true. So they step back from him. First they stop talking about him, and then they stop believing in him. The gospel message, and every saint, man and female, in all of the earth who has ever truly experienced the Christian life, I'm not talking about going to heaven, I'm talking about genuinely experiencing the life of Christ flowing through them, has discovered this amazing and difficult secret that it is precisely in our weakness where God displays His power. All too many people don't step forward to serve people in Jesus' name, don't do the hard things in their family, in their marriage, with their children, with their grandchildren, don't serve people in their church, in their community, because they say, I can't do it, and here's the deal. You're right, you can't. That's never been the point. The point has always and only been that you, by the grace of God, the same God who spoke light into existence, is now shining into your heart so that you can know Him, so that you can see the face of His Son, and with the same grace that He saved you, He will now empower you. The weak are qualified because God is strong. Please don't miss that. You're qualified to be a Christian in all circumstances, to love God and to serve people in spite of your apparent lack of success and in spite of their ingratitude. You're qualified to do all of that, not because you're strong, but because God is. Listen to Jesus explain it in John 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do, what did he say? Nothing. Question for you. No arborist here, probably. I'm going to ask you a question about plant life. What do we call a branch that has been separated from the vine? A stick. That's all it is. Do sticks bear fruit? They do not. The moment the branch is separated from the vine, it goes from a fruit-bearing branch to a stick that is only good for clubbing people or starting fires. Very, very far separated from the Creator's original intention that the vine would bear fruit. Jesus knew exactly the kind of world He was sending His disciples into. They were going to experience, shortly after this pronouncement, their own weakness and failure. Peter is now going to deny him. All the disciples are going to run for their lives. Why did they do that? Because for a moment, they started looking at their own strength and their own capability. Listen again, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So your part is to rest in Jesus, and the part of Jesus is to bear fruit. You spend time with Him, He gives you life. His life is expressed through you. But most of us check out of that process from the very beginning because we look at our own weakness and we say, I can't. 
when the truth of the matter is that God's favorite platform to display His own strength is our weakness. That's how it works. Hudson Taylor was an extraordinary pioneering missionary. The first take gospel to inland China. And he said all of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they counted on Him being with them. Did you hear it? Everyone who made a mark for God was a weak person. That's all God has to work with. If you want proof, just look around the room. Believe it or not, this is God's plan. It's us. The likes of us. I mean, I I struggled to find my car keys a little bit this morning. (laughs) I had to go back to the car to get something I'd forgotten. We're all frail. We're all forgetful. We're all weak. We're all easily tempted. We all sin all too easily. What is God's plan? Not to not to make us superhuman in our own abilities, confidence, strength, knowledge, and wisdom, but to live His life through us so that His wisdom, His strength, His grace, His good news flows through us. When Christian ministry, and I'm not talking about just the local public ministry of the church, I'm talking about everything the church does when it's scattered. This is our gathering. We scatter for ministry all week. We minister on this campus when we are gathered. We scatter to act like Jesus and serve people in the name of Jesus all week. No more important place to do that than your own family, your own marriage, your own children, your own friendships. Because if everything, if you're an amazing Christian on Sunday, but nothing like Jesus the rest of the week, that doesn't please Jesus. That's called hypocrisy. That will turn people away from the faith faster than anything because it's a false representation. But you are, if you are a Christian, you are already related to God. The face of the glory, the face of Jesus is shining into your life, giving you the glory of the knowledge of God Himself. You know Him, He knows you, He loves you. Your weakness remains and will always be with you until God carries you to glory. But the strength of God will always be with you as well. And if you rest in His strength and understand that your present difficult circumstances are merely the platform in which He's going to show who He is, the pressure is off you, and you are free to rest in Him and let Him do what only He can do. My pastor used to say, if you're doing the Lord's work, no wonder you're tired. You get that? That's like the stick trying to strain and groan and grunt and work and labor through producing fruit without being connected to the vine. It's useless. But if the branch is connected to the vine, it bears fruit naturally. Let's keep reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, now we've moved down to verse 10. Paul says that The experience of all these troubles he's working his way through, being afflicted, 
being perplexed, being persecuted, being struck down, result in something worse than suffering. Let me read it to you in context again. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. In other words, Paul says our daily experience is that we are carrying death with us. The death of Jesus, but look at the purpose. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the, what's it say? The life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see the exchange? Paul says we feel like we're dying, but the point of that does not mean that God has forsaken us. It actually means that God is right with us, doing something extraordinary in us. As we die to ourselves, as we feel like we're dying, the life of Jesus is expressed, is known. Verse 12 is huge. Remember, this is an ungrateful church who has questioned Paul's goodness his character, his honesty. They've even questioned where he, whether he's a false teacher. Look at his loving response to them. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, you're not an apostle, and most of you won't be missionaries or pastors. Some of you might be, and some of you almost certainly should be. But when you enter into a difficult season with another person who you're trying to help grow to faith in Christ, when they start mistreating you, the natural fleshly reaction is to say, well, this is a bunch of nonsense. I'm out. If you're going to treat me like this, I'm pulling back. Paul endured in this ministry, not losing heart. He remained in relationship with this ungrateful, divisive, litigious, often sexually immoral church because he said, as you continue to malign us and we continue to suffer, our goal is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on God who's been shining into our hearts, and if we die in the process, all that's going to mean is the life of Jesus will be there for you. He doesn't give up his faith. Look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak. Now, if you look in the cross-reference, you'll discover that Paul in verse 13 is not writing original thoughts. He's actually quoting Psalm 116, verse 10. And in that psalm, the psalmist says, God, I believed you, so I spoke, even though I was brought very low. And that's the crux and the real test of real faith in Jesus. When life is hard and you feel forsaken and your best intentions in serving God and serving other people have been misunderstood and pushed aside, will you continue to trust God and speak for Him? The psalmist said, even though I was brought very low, even though I was crushed, 
I kept trusting you, God, and because I kept trusting you, I kept speaking. I didn't check out. I didn't step back. I didn't renounce you. Paul says, in my relationship with you, Corinthians, as I read the Old Testament, I find myself in continuity with a thousand years of believers. And if you're going to have the same attitude, you're going to be in continuity with 3,000 years of believers. The Psalms were written about 1,000 years before the life of Jesus. So Paul's discovery, and all I'm trying to do today is adjust your expectations of what the normal Christian life is so that you can actually enjoy it. The success-driven Christian life where everything is awesome all the time and you've got 2.5 kids and a beautiful little house, God doesn't begrudge you any of those blessings. Many Christians have enjoyed them. But suffering is the norm, as I'm about to show you. And Paul says in verse 15, verse 14 rather, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What's Paul trying to tell us in verses 10 through 15? Simply this, and I told you this would get harder as the passage advanced. Do you agree so far? Because the first thing I told you is when you're weak, you're in a really good position because it's exactly when you're weak that God shows up himself as strong. Your weakness, your difficulty, your suffering is exactly the platform in which God characteristically most loves to display his power and his strength. And everybody says, well, I'd rather not be weak. Well, of course, but you have no choice because you already are. And if you keep trying to replace the vine, you a mere branch, that's real failure. You're not the life source, Jesus is. You're not strong, He is. You're not righteous, He is. The life, the righteousness, the goodness, the mercy, the love, the faithfulness, everything that you enjoy from God comes by being in Christ. So your weakness is exactly the platform in which God shows up and shows off, and now Paul's telling us something even heavier, and it is this, number two, our death brings life to other people. You don't believe me? Look in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul says we're dying. We're dying to our own will. We're dying to the rights we used to enjoy. We've died to the right of being understood and appreciated. We've died to the rights of being respected and admired. The Corinthians have been part of all of that. But he says the fact that we're dying is actually bringing life to you. We believe and so we speak. In other words, we're in good company. This is the way it has always been with God's faithful people. And here's our confidence. Look in 14 again. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. All of this is for your sake. 
all the suffering you're seeing that you're equating with Christian failure, it's actually for your sake, so that His grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You think, well, Paul's a masochist. Paul's just this weird, make-everything-a-positive guy, like the optimist that fell off the skyscraper. Have you heard this? Every floor as he fell, he said, well, so far, so good. And that's not what's happening here. Paul is actually dealing with the utter realism of what Jesus did and what Jesus is calling him to do. Let Jesus explain it to you. John chapter 12. This is right before the Lord's Supper, right before the Lord is arrested, tried, crucified, buried. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The only way for a seed to flourish and give fruit is to fall into the earth and die itself. If that word picture wasn't clear to you, now he's going to spell it out, what it means. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Listen, Christian. Am I talking to Christians? If you're not, here's the terms. If you are, here's what Jesus wants. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, verse 26, please. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where was Jesus going? Got really unenthusiastic just then. Did you notice? And where I am, there my servant will be also. Here's the promise. If anyone serves me, what will happen? The Father will honor him. Now, Jesus is not talking about hating your life, and I can't stand it, I hate this place. <laughs> He's talking about loving your life on earth, the old way you used to live, the way the world offered it so much that it keeps you from the eternal life that he's offering and the eternal impact you can make. People who try to save their life in this world find out that holding on to life on this earth is like trying to keep a tight grip on water. The tighter you squeeze, the faster you lose it. Jesus says, I'm on my way to die. If you really want to serve me, follow me unto death to yourself. And here's what's going to happen if you do that. The Father who honored me and will raise me from the dead will do the same for you. Verse 14 in Corinthians, we've been reading, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. To put it really simply, Christian, if life is all about you, no one will see much of Jesus. You make your life all about yourself, that's all your life will amount to. I read a, well, I listened to a brutal memoir because I'm listening to more books than I'm reading. And it was the memoir of a tragic teenage life that ended all too soon. 
and the boy's life ended in the 70s. So the present-day author talking about the death of that child and the destruction of that family visited his graveside and said, the image in a 700-pound headstone that the family lovingly provided, the picture of the boy has been chipped away, and now you have to do a great deal of work cleaning the thing to even see his name. And he projected forward on what was little was left of that family that all died their own sad ways years and years apart. In a few more years, it will all be gone and no one will ever know that he lived because no one will be there to clean the tombstone. And I thought, you know, on earth, that's true of every single one of us. The worst comfort I've ever heard given at a graveside, it was by a religious person, is as long as he lives in your memory, he's alive. Well, that's true in its own manner of speaking, but what about when you die? Does that then extinguish that person? According to Jesus, your little life can matter and should matter and will matter forever if you follow him where he leads you and die to yourself and live to his purposes. The most dramatic example I've recently read of this in years ago, a pastor named Leif Anderson was told this story by the daughter of dead missionaries. They were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the gospel reaching the Congo in Africa. And this now adult, aged woman told the pastor what had happened to her and to her family. When the Christian missionaries arrived in the Congo, tribesmen, they did not know this, feared them, suspected them, thought their motives were dubious, and though they did not openly reject them, they slowly began to poison them. An old man, just before dying, made this confession at the 100th anniversary of, at an anniversary service when the commemoration of the gospel arriving to that nation was being celebrated. The old man, the national, said, I'll soon die myself. I have to tell you what happened here. For years and years and years and years and years, the poisoning took a very long time. They poisoned all the missionaries. The children, being smaller, died first. The parents died eventually. And the old man said, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. You see, their kids died and they stayed. They grew mysteriously sick and acted like Christians all the way through the illness. I, I couldn't do that. You may not be called to do that, but in Christ you can do that. You can live like a Christian in your difficult circumstances every day so long as you are united to Christ. If you're connected to the vine, the life of Jesus can always flow through you. If you take back control, refuse to die to yourself and say, enough's enough, it's not working for me, I'm taking over, you're going to start acting like a stick. And the fruit and the life of Jesus will no longer be seen through you. I'll tell you this, and I don't want to get into specifics because frankly, there are too many to mention. 
One of the real troubles in the United States in our practice of Christianity is that the people naming Christ often don't act like Him. And they keep their Christianity and their faith, their expression of their faith reduced to a worship gathering. And the rest of the week, they act just like the world. Hungry for power, easily hurt, offended, vindictive, seeking retribution, gaining power and influence. And we are disciples of the Son of God who willingly chose to march to His own death and says, if you're my disciple, follow me. He spelled it out over and over. Remember what Jesus told us to do? To take up our cross, how many times? Daily. And follow Him. But if life is all about you, no one's going to see much of Jesus. I'm so glad that testimony from the Congo was told to the daughter before she died and later reached that 100th anniversary so that people would know long after the killers were dead that it had all been worth it. And Paul says, you may have noticed in the passage we just read, that Jesus, who is giving them life, look, with, look at it with me again in case you missed it, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. In other words, Paul's saying, we're looking forward to the day when we're all raised from the dead and we all stand around Jesus together. Paul stood around the throne of Jesus eventually with the people who maligned Him and lied about Him. Because his death to his own dignity, his death to his own vindication brought them life. So if you're struggling at work, you're struggling with your kids, you're struggling in your marriage, keep Jesus at the center, keep uniting to him. And if it feels like the circumstances are killing you, remember, Jesus is life. He will give you life and you are his strategy and your weakness to bring life to other people. And then he says in verse 16, and we're done. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are what? Temporary, transient. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Don't miss this, because Paul's closing with the best part. The treasure in your life, the treasure in the Tupperware, the enormous treasure in the paper bag that is your little frailing body, means something. It means, number three, that our earthly suffering produces eternal rewards. This is the way it's always been. That's why the writer to the Hebrews said this, Hebrews 12, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What was Jesus thinking of while he was dying on the cross? This verse tells you, he was not contemplating his own suffering. He was looking past it to the joy that it would bring. He was looking forward to you. 
As he agonized in his body, he set his mind on the joy that was ahead of him because he knew that through his death, he would bring you to life. Now he brings it, the writer of Hebrews brings it down to our level, tells us what to do about it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You keep your mind on the dying and then risen Jesus, you'll have all the encouragement, all the strength that you need, no matter how weak you are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where I, the passage I just read to you, Paul makes an extraordinary statement. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, he's saying, my, my suffering here is temporary. It's actually light. There's not much to it. If you're familiar with this verse, he's later going to go on and lay out the biography. I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was stoned, meaning they left him for dead. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. And Paul's eternal perspective is, ah, eh, lightweight. Not much to it. It doesn't hurt that much. And here's the best part. It's not that long. Verse 18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Hold on to this, Christian. It'll shape everything. It'll shape your loving. It'll shape your giving. It'll shape your serving. It will reorient your whole life in the direction that Jesus wants it to go. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here's the question, what do you want? How long do you want to enjoy it? If you settle for the American dream, that's all you'll have for 80, 90 some years at the most. What happens when we don't act on this? What happens if we live average Christian lives apart from the vine, apart from dependence on Jesus? Here's three consequences. Number one, we won't share the gospel or do anything God-sized. Our suffering will make us stop speaking of God. Our suffering will make us stop trusting God. Number two, we will judge God's character in light of our circumstances. If your circumstances are the indicator to you of who God actually is, God in your mind is always negotiable. He's good when life is good. He's distant and horrible when life seems distant and horrible. And number three, we will focus on having all of our rewards here instead of in heaven. What do you want? And how long do you want to enjoy it? If we could glimpse Paul's celebration with the Corinthian church around the throne of Jesus, we would see that he does not regret a, a drop of bloodshed. He doesn't regret a tear. He doesn't regret anything that happened on him because Paul insisted on having his rewards in heaven, not in his present short earthly life. If you're really a disciple of Jesus, you are a simple, disposable creature with the eternal treasure of a relationship with God within you. The Tupperware will soon be broken and soon be disposed of. The treasure you enjoy now will continue forever, so make that, please, your focus. Let's pray together. Can I just ask you, do you see anything in your life that you need to surrender to the Lord right now? Your earthly values, your 
disenchantment, your discouragement, just your flat-out weariness has taken over and you're barely holding on? Can I invite you to give that to the Lord right now, please? Turn it over to Him. Ask Him to reorient you toward eternal perspectives.